0: radio network and now the rabbi Daniel Lappen show the more the world changes the more we find comfort in the things that never change this is rabbi Daniel lapin on demand on the blaze radio network welcome to the rabbi Daniel lapin radio show where I your rabbi reveal how the world works. And um, I don't know if any of you have visited London, uh, or if you plan on visiting London. Um, I lived there for many years, and um, uh, at at the time I was uh, a devoted Anglophile. Um, I, I was completely taken up with the idea that uh, this tiny little island off the northwestern coast of Europe has a language which is spoken by a significant proportion of the world's population and it's a it developed a language that has become the official language of air transport, control tower communication, air traffic control. Uh, It's um, a country in which, in the middle of the 18th century, the Industrial Revolution launched. And um, I'm no longer an Anglophile because of the terrible decay that has set in. Just recently, uh, the Prime Minister of England, Boris Johnson, who wrote a a marvelous biography of Winston Churchill, uh, made the most asinine comments about how bad it was that the steam engine was invented. And that, of course, was part of the launch of the Industrial Revolution uh, in about 1750 as a convenient date, hard to pinpoint to the moment. But uh, uh, yeah, but I was intrigued. I remember uh, being very aware that I was walking the streets in London of a place, and this was the capital, that really dominated the world for more than 100 years, well over 100 years. And I thought it was just it just so interesting. And one of the places I used to walk was Trafalgar Square. Now, Trafalgar Square is a very beautiful, large open square in the heart of London, and the traffic goes around it, but you can go over to the middle, and there's a nice pond, and there's uh, statues of lions, and uh, there's a huge column. And at the top of the column is a statue of Admiral Nelson, one of the great historic admirals of the Royal Navy and uh this it's called Nelson's column and you can actually see it from quite far away even though there are big buildings around and uh Nelson died at the battle of Trafalgar in um I'm going to say about 1805 and uh what happened was that the French revolution all right earlier on uh, say 1790 Uh, had caused tremendous disruption, not just in France, but elsewhere as well. And uh, it it really destroyed much of of what held France together. And many of the problems that France suffers to this very day, uh, I think, have something to do with the legacy of the French Revolution. Like you, I went to a school that praised the French Revolution. Oh, how wonderful it was It downed the evil monarchy and substituted such ringing slogans as liberty, fraternity, brotherhood, equality. Oh, yay, equality. Oh, what a wonderful revolution it was. Well, uh, it wasn't until I got um, educated, which didn't happen during the time I was at school. I'll tell you that. Uh, I wasn't at a geek, but it might have been a geek. It was as good as a geek or as bad as a geek. And, um, and I you know I confess I wasn't the best raw material either. but uh, a geek, by the way, stands for government indoctrination camp, uh, which is the name for places that used to be called public schools. And uh, and so, no, the, the French Revolution was a disaster. The monarchy was also very bad, but what replaced it was not much better. Anyway, as a result of the French Revolution, a very ordinary young man uh, turned into Napoleon Bonaparte. It's really a remarkable story, and I've, I've spoken a little b- a bit about it on previous shows, and uh, it's, it's only relevant to this show uh, because, first of all, it, it shows that uh, when even a mediocre man seizes the moment and uh, jumps into the circumstance, he can ride that wave very far indeed. And we never know exactly where our moments are, when our moments are, and where our circumstances lie. But uh, I will tell you this, and that is that uh, when people talk about all the qualities of leadership, um, they're usually wasting your time and their time because there isn't such a thing as, oh, a leader. There are leaders in different times, different places and for different things. And not everyone who makes an excellent military leader later turns out to be a good political leader or a good corporate leader. It doesn't work that way. And uh, being able to seize a moment, sometimes a situation makes the person. And uh, that certainly was the case with Napoleon Bonaparte. Under France's normal merit-based system, and you can see why this is relevant to the United States of America at the moment, when I say that under France's traditional merit-based system, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte would have gone absolutely nowhere at all, because there wasn't a great deal of merit. But uh, under the revolutionary environment, with riots in the streets, and looting, and people being killed, and a crime wave, and uh, and intense anti-church uh, feelings— huh, Who's, who'd believe I'm talking about the late 18th century? Well, under those destructive conditions, uh, a man like Napoleon Bonaparte did emerge and uh, did considerable damage, huge loss of life. He treated uh, French, the French people as nothing but cannon fodder, and he issued Uh, proclamations of how many young Frenchmen he needed to show up. And you're talking numbers like 50,000 and 200,000. He literally burned through the lives of an entire generation of Frenchmen and and caused chaos and havoc through much of Europe. Finally, uh, it all comes to an end Uh, It goes on surprisingly long. I mean, you know, he started rising at the end of the 1700s, the very end, and uh, his end comes when he invades Russia uh, late in 1812. And um, uh, what did him in is exactly what did Adolf Hitler in uh, much later, of course, in 1812. in november and december of 1941 and it's it's really odd i mean you would have thought that adolf hitler uh, who had so much in common so much in common with with uh, napoleon bonaparte in that you know neither was a person of great achievement or accomplishment or merit and uh, both were brought into power by tumultuous circumstances uh, in the case of Bonaparte, the French Revolution, and in the case of Adolf Hitler, obviously uh, the chaos uh, and economic uh, dislocation in Germany in the aftermath of, of World War I and much of what was going on at that time. But uh, you would really have thought that Adolf Hitler might, as he was planning the invasion of Russia that he called uh, Barbarossa, You would have thought that he might have remembered Napoleon in 1812, but he didn't. And of course, that was the beginning of the end of the Third Reich. In the case of Bonaparte, um, 1812, the invasion of of Russia, that's what pretty much uh, finished him off. But his fall had already begun earlier at the Battle of Trafalgar when the combined fleets, of Spain and France, both under the command of Napoleon, um, were planning on preparing to bring about the end of Great Britain of England, and um, and so England sent Admiral Nelson uh, to where the entire Franco-Spanish fleet was um, was hanging out on the Spanish coast and the nelson engaged them and and effected an absolutely brilliant naval history by the way it's studied today in naval colleges uh, because even though uh, it was under sail and today of course we are under power nonetheless uh, it was a brilliant piece of naval strategizing which pretty much meant the end of napoleon's dreams of going further anyway napoleon died uh, because of a french Um, sniper during that battle. Did I say Napoleon? If I did, I'm sorry. I meant Nelson died as a result of that, the great admiral, and he was commemorated um, for his victory at the Battle of Trafalgar by Nelson's column at Trafalgar Square, Um, and that was um, about uh, 1805. Um, Right after that, 1806 or 1807, the great british poet william wordsworth wrote the poem that i uh, see as so central to the world view promulgated in the rabbi daniel Lappin show and the reason i praise you all as happy warriors is because of Wordsworth's poem called The The Character of the Happy Warrior. I've read it uh, on earlier shows several times. I'm not going to do it right now. I'll do it again down the road. But I will tell you this, that the poem is a uh, essentially a tribute to diligence and perseverance, persistence, strong character, willpower, and... Um, To be a happy warrior means that you are not easily distracted from what you should and must do, when you should and must do it, and until you have finished doing it on schedule. Now, this is a high mark to aim for, and happy warriors are not necessarily people who have succeeded in this and got it mastered and are completely in control of themselves with superb self-discipline and self-mastery. But happy warriors are people who are aware of how absolutely important it is to Be focused on what you should be doing and to not let yourself be distracted from that and to know what you should be doing and to do it until it's done. That is a life-changing ability. When you embrace the credo of the happy warrior, you are on the road to dramatically improving your life. And the 5F program that I write about and I talk about, I teach about, is staying focused regardless what the distractions are in popular entertainment or in politics or in the news or in the media, whatever it is. You remember that as interesting as all that is, it does not come before your five F's, your family, your faith, your finances, your friendships, and your fitness, taking care of your body. Those are five priorities. And there's not a single one of us happy warriors right at this very moment who does not realize that we could all be doing better than we are on each of those five. We're doing better than we used to, but we could be doing far, far better still. And that is what being a happy warrior is all about. And, uh, I really want to have a happy I want to have a sequence of happy warrior get-togethers. Uh I think what we might do is um try and uh, obtain the services of somebody who will be the event organizer and we will start arranging a schedule of events for happy warriors to meet and we'll just use my map with the pins. We'll uh, we'll look at locations where we have Either heavy concentrations of happy warriors, or places where the number of happy warriors we have is growing, uh, to have have meetings in those places like Croatia, happy warriors are popping up in Croatia at a very high rate. So that you know, that'd be a great place, great place for a uh, a happy warriors get together. Um, I don't know if we're going to have one in New York City. But uh, because we, we we have a number of happy warriors in the area, but not so many in the city itself. However, if we did, you know where I'd want to have it? I'd want to have it. You're going to think this is crazy, but just listen on. I'd want to have it in a city park uh, to the west of Central Park, a tiny little park, not like Central Park, tiny little park, on uh, Amsterdam Avenue on the Upper West Side between 98th and 99th Street. <laughs> why? Why, why? Well, because it turns out that uh, right there is a small little park called the Happy Warrior Park, believe it or not. And so, as you can imagine, um, I was certainly interested in finding out like, how does this come about? Why is there a happy warrior park in New York City? I mean, is it in my honor? Don't think so. Is it in the honor of William Wordsworth? I don't think so. So what is it? Well, it turns out that um, there was a governor of the state of New York called Alfred Emanuel Smith. And um, he was a governor of New York, I think it was before World War Two. He was an Irish immigrant or or his parents immigrated from Ireland. Uh, He dropped out of school because in those days was not uncommon. He he needed to help support the family. And uh, nonetheless, he became a governor of New York. And he um, he was a friend of President Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, they died about a year apart, 1944-45. Uh, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, President of the United States at the time, nicknamed Governor Alfred Smith. He called him the Happy Warrior in reference to the famous William Wordsworth poem that I keep talking about. And, uh, and so there, there it is, uh, the Happy Warrior Park in New York City. Who'd have thought, right? Now, there's something I'm going to urge you to do, and I also uh, would, would love for you to do this. It would be good for everybody. Um, So we're on the threshold of a new year. That's at least when I'm preparing the show for you. You may be listening to this at another time, but whenever it is, you know, it's worth remembering that uh, today is the start of the rest of your life. It's almost as if any day you choose, any day you choose to change your life can be your new year. Right? you can you can pick the date. It could be your birthday. it could be uh, uh, it could be really January the first, or it could be um, a, a another new year date of your choice. But at a certain point, it's worthwhile saying to yourself seriously, okay, I'm ready for phase two of my life. I want it to be better. I want to make more of myself. I want to do things a little bit differently. And so uh, in preparation for that, I have two resources that I want to have in your hands. Number one is a journal. I've spoken before how very important it is um, to keep a journal of your day because it's not possible to modify something if you don't measure it. And the way to measure your life is to make sure that before you go to bed at night, you write a journal of the day's happenings. Not not as a history book, not as something for your great-grandchildren to uncover in an old vase one day. No, this is for you to evaluate. This is your reaction to things, what you did, how close you came to achieving your goals, where you slipped up. This is totally private, not for anybody else to read at all. And uh, we have a very good journal for you to keep this record. It's a journal that is structured with the framework of the 5F project. And, um, and so it's called Chart Your Course. This is on sale right now, by the way. So at rabbidaniellappin.com, head over to the store and look for Chart Your Course, a, a journal to begin to take seriously the next phase of your life. And in concert with that, in terms of having a roadmap, having specific steps of the things you can do, because before you can change the externals, you have to change the internals. Before you can change the physical, you have to change the spiritual, because the spiritual drives the physical. And before you can change the body, you have to change the soul. And so uh, this is a a book written by a fantastic Jewish teacher, a lovely woman by the name of Ruchi Koval. And you will will love uh, getting to know her through her book, but uh, also you will love what the book does for you. It's called Soul Construction. Shape your character using eight steps from the timeless Jewish practice of Musar. And uh, it really is, it's not a fad. It's authentic. It's based on rock-solid principles that you can use in your life. So don't hesitate, please. Um, RabbiDanielLappin.com. Head over to the store. Soul Construction is the book. Chart Your Course is the journal. Together, they constitute a kit for changing your future, modifying your destiny, making it more the life you want than the life you have. And isn't that true for every one of us? What, I mean, what happy warrior cannot say, you know what, there are ways in which I can make each of my five Fs better than they were up to now. I know I can, and I suspect it's true for you too. So, chart your course is the journal. Soul construction, shape your character using eight steps from the timeless Jewish practice of Musar. Both of them ready and available for you at rabbi Hurry up and take care of that. And now, let's move right on from there. Got a great letter in, um, in the mail this week, and, and I want to tell you about it. Um this is a letter that was written in the context of last week's show. Um so you'll remember the most recent show was my five predictions for 2022. And um and I think those of you who who heard it I think liked it it was a fun show and I in in that show I had spoken about um, the fact that it didn't make sense for the United States government to interfere with China's with China over its treatment of its Muslim minorities or for anything else. There's lots of things that China does that I don't think are very good. Uh, there's also lots that the British government does that I don't think are very good. There are lots of things that uh, that the American government does that I don't think are very good, many of them having to do with its treatment and handling of COVID. But um, it's a real question mark whether one government should interfere in the internal affairs of another government. Now, if you want to invade, if you want to declare war on that other country, and you want to um, exert control over what they do, good luck to you. Right, I, I have no problem with countries declaring war on one another. When I say no problem, I, I think you get what I'm saying, um, because at least it's real. In other words, if you have the power to exert your control over somebody else, that's one thing. But if you lack the power, and you nonetheless make loud noises and uh, and uh, try to pretend that you can control things. You're like a a little bantam puppy dog barking impudently that then runs behind its mistress's skirts whenever the big dog stops and looks back at it. And that's that's what I really object to. America is not in any position uh, and should not be interfering in China's affairs, certainly not if it costs blood and money in American terms. As you can imagine, I was no fan of what America was doing in Iraq and later in Afghanistan under President George W. Bush and later on under other presidents as well. Uh, In other words, using an army for anything other than destroying, killing, and obtaining control of is really an abuse of an army and, uh, and and a very wrong thing to do so at any rate I got this interesting letter Um I, I'm not I'm not going to tell you her name but she writes dear Rabbi Lappin I very much enjoyed your latest podcast in which you stated your predictions for 2022 I always appreciate the information about the world that you provide and that I don't hear anywhere else <coughs> This time I was floored when hearing the economic statistics regarding China and the rest of the world, especially Taiwan. I do have a question about what you refer to as China's internal policies. I'm paraphrasing, but you said something like the US has no business interfering in China's internal policies, including enslavement and genocide of their Uyghur population. My antennae pinged at that one. Though I have no particular fondness for the tenets or followers of Islam, it seems as though the Western nations, and especially the United States, had a similar view of what Hitler was doing to the Jews. Don't you think civilized nations had an obligation, though they failed to live up to it, to interfere with Germany's internal policy of of Jewish genocide? If you agree with that, then why shouldn't we have the same obligation towards the Ugyazs? I know we certainly haven't interfered in other genocides going on in the world, especially in African nations. So it does get a bit confusing. I imagine I'm missing something. So I would be I would be very happy to hear your reply. And she signs off with her name. Well, um, I thought that was such a lovely letter. It was such a, um, a well written letter posing a question, something that she didn't get that I said. And she is giving me an opportunity to change my mind or correct what I said and doing so very eloquently indeed. So um, I, as many of you have discovered, when, when I get a nice letter like that, I respond. Now, I don't always get to it right away. I do it as soon as I can. And the response I wrote to her, <clears throat> pardon me, <laughs> the response I wrote to her reads as follows. Dear so-and-so, I nearly said the name. Thank you so much for writing as well as for listening in the first place. I also appreciate your kind words. Your question is a tough question, but I shall try to answer. Being someone who believes that the Constitution of the United States is a vitally important document that saves our country from deteriorating into a mob-led democracy— We must remember that Hitler was elected democratically within a democracy. I do not believe that America should have interfered in Germany's treatment of the Jews. I think the country was correct not to interfere in the murder of Tutsis by Hutus in Rwanda in 1994. The government of the USA is obliged to act in the interests of the United States, not in the interests of Jews, Tutsis, or even the world. It is obliged to act in the interests of the USA. That means that although to God all human blood may be of equal value, it would be highly immoral for the U.S. government to risk U.S. blood to save the lives of non-Americans." I strenuously objected to George W. Bush's plans to expend American blood and money to bring democracy to some of the more horrid corners of the world. Exporting our values is not in the country's interest. We can negotiate just as successfully with dictatorships as with democracies. We do not need other countries to adopt our values. That said, it would obviously be fine for individual American citizens to do whatever they wished in order to try save anyone they wished. You see, the problem is when the U.S. government, acting extra-constitutionally, decided, for instance, that we must interfere because Senegal is mistreating Wagakugu tribesmen, or Brazil is mistreating Amazonian jaguar trappers and Bangladesh (coughs) is mistreating Pakistani migrant laborers. Don't forget that each of these interferences costs money, and that means higher taxes for you and me and everyone else, and it means American blood spilled on the part of American servicemen. Furthermore, what if the Biden administration decides that maltreatment of animals is just as serious as maltreatment of Muslim minorities? and insist that we send the military to stop the eating of dogs by Vietnamese peasants. You see, American values is a very elastic term, depending on the social moods of the country. Either all international interference decided upon by the White House is acceptable, or none is. Now, you, may, you might say to me, wait, I didn't say send the Marines, I just said we should protest. Well, you've heard me distinguish between silly countries and serious countries. Silly countries protest, which usually achieves exactly nothing. Hitler was hardly going to stop his genocide because of American protests any more than China will stop its policy towards its Muslims, or for that matter, stop building 300 coal-fired power stations every year because Joe Biden issues a strongly worded protest. I have no objections if a quixotic American decides to raise an army of mercenaries to go to Vietnam and take dogs off the menu, or to Bangladesh to force better treatment of migrant workers. But I do object to the United States government interfering in the internal policies of other countries even if we consider those policies to be vile and wrong. I would be equally outraged by anyone who dislikes how I bring up my children invading my home in order to save my children. Such a person would probably find themselves looking into the business end of a 357 Colt Python revolver. So as a Jew, I know it would have been awkward for me not to join those asking the United States government to stop Hitler's anti-Semitism during the second half of the 30s decade of the 20th century, but I don't think I would have. I might have argued that there might be a strong American interest in stopping Hitler earlier rather than later, but it would have to have been in terms of America's interests, not those of German citizens who happened to be Jewish. So in short, I do not agree that civilized nations had an obligation to interfere with Germany's internal policy of Jewish genocide. I know of no force, either legal or moral, that should compel Argentina or Iceland to have interfered, whatever that may mean, with Germany's anti-Semitic savagery. I hope this makes sense to you, because I know you feel strongly on this. Thanks again for being a happy warrior. Sincerely, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. And uh, you know what? She wrote back again. And she wrote back as follows, very short. Wow, your reply was not what I expected, but it certainly makes a lot of sense. I appreciate your consistency of thought. I suppose my initial reaction was more emotional than rational, something you always tell us to guard against. Thank you for that and for responding so quickly. So now I've had my mind opened a bit more. And that's why I listen to your podcasts and why I'm really loving your scrolling through scripture. And um, uh, madam, all I can say is that I am truly proud to count you among our happy warriors. Now, let me take you back to the 1980s when Americans were absolutely confident that their children better start learning Japanese because Japan was buying out America and that uh, their children would all be working for Japanese companies. That was what was going on in the 1980s. And you know how movies are really very helpful cultural signposts to show us what's really happening in the culture. Well, one of the movies uh, back then was um, Back to the Future 2. It was the sequel to the very successful Back to the Future. And in Back to the Future 2, made in 1989, uh, one of the uh, themes of the, of the movie was how everybody's working for Japanese bosses. Right, It wasn't a central part of the movie, but you could see that they were Japanese bosses. A year earlier, they made a movie called Die Hard with Bruce Willis. And you might remember it. Bruce Willis, you know, performs his magnificent rescue in the Nagatomi Towers. or You remember? Big company, a Japanese company in Los Angeles in Century City. And uh, and and so it was why because Japan Japanese investors were buying up every signature property in America. Uh, for heaven's sake, uh, the, in 1988, the Mitsubishi company bought out Rockefeller Center. Um, just a year earlier, Bridgestone Tires bought out an iconic American tire manufacturer, Firestone. Bridgestone bought out Firestone. Um, well, at least we own the movies, right? No, Sony, a Japanese company, bought Columbia Pictures, and uh, so not only was Japan buying out company after company, but they were buying Pebble Beach Golf Course. Uh, they bought. Uh, they bought the Rockefeller Center. You know, they they bought virtually all the hotels along the Waikiki beachfront in Hawaii. Um, they bought major towers, major office towers in Los Angeles and New York. Uh, really, wherever you turned, wh- wherever you looked at, the evidence was clear that Japan was going to end up owning America. And, uh, and that didn't happen. The question is, why didn't it happen? Why is it that when you move to about 92, 93, 94, that period, uh, Japan is in retreat and they're 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 selling off property they own. Why? What's going on? Well, I don't want to oversimplify the complexities of economics, but at least one of the factors is that by then it was becoming clear that Japan was aging. Japanese people were not having children. They were very focused on work, men and women, and they were not getting married, they were not having children. And the country was aging, and that remains a huge demographic problem for Japan today. But uh, it started becoming evident then. And what happened is that um, you know, you think about it, in the natural order of things, right, um, young people take more risks than older people in general. Um, Older people are looking to just stay where they are to protect their assets. Uh, Older people do not go on Viking invasion expeditions. (laughs) The young people do that. Um, Comes the 90s and Japan was literally running out of younger people. Normally what happens is that, uh, you know, when a, uh, a senior business executive in Japan reached a certain age, Um, he'd be replaced by a younger person. And so the same uh, vivaciousness and aggressiveness and adventurism that he possessed and was now perhaps losing uh, would be picked up again by his replacement. But there weren't any young replacements. And so um, that began to be a problem. Furthermore, within the country, And as I've spoken about many times before on this show, but I can't emphasize it enough because people do not fully understand this. And that is the vibrance and health of an economy is dependent upon a growing population. Now, you'd say to yourself, it's not logical, right? I mean, after all, if a population, if a country is doing very well, shall we say, with a, a population of 50 million people, then it should organize itself to maintain that population. Keep it at 50 million. That's all you got to do. Don't let it get bigger. Don't let it get smaller. And it will continue to main. well, that simply isn't true, uh, I can't go into it today why it isn't true, but that in and of itself is a very important principle in economics, and it's also a very fascinating insight into why uh, money is spiritual and matters that impact money are not just physical but are spiritual. But it has a little bit to do with um, the kind of atmosphere you have in a place that is growing. Namely, uh, you've got children around. There's a different atmosphere. I don't know if you've ever wandered into one of the retirement communities in southeast Florida, and they have them in other parts of the country in the United States as well. But these are places where nobody below the age of whatever it is, 50 or 60, is allowed to live there or have property there. And so it's all old people except on visiting day. <laughs> right? Now, there's no formal visiting day, but it kind of is like that. And so, you know, if, if uh, grandpa and grandma down the road are having grandchildren visit, there's a sort of uptick of enthusiasm on the block. But otherwise, it's all older people. And I'll tell you, it's rather sad to watch them pretending to be young. And um, I, I won't go into some of the uh, of what they get up to. But it's not because they themselves have to be young, I don't think, as much as it is that they miss not having youth around. That is a real thing. Um, if you translate that into the economy of a small town, you know, there was a period when uh, – and even now there are parts of South Michigan, parts in the Northeast where uh, the population – is, is just old. Pe- young people have moved away. There are many towns like that, unfortunately, in the United States. And their population numbers may not necessarily be very much down, but there are no young people. That's the problem. And, um, and you can see the difference. Mo- take a look at one of the nice booming towns in the South, Florida, Texas, Tennessee, uh, and, and you see a different atmosphere young people are around. It's really, really important. And so uh, the Japanese economy, by virtue of that problem, began to decline, and uh, they were not able to sustain major investments. As you know, you know if, if you buy a big property and your income goes down, you can't keep it up, and you have to sell it or, or let it go. And that's exactly what happened to Japan. Their economy declined. They couldn't keep up Ownership of Rockefeller Center and Pebble Beach and M- Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles and countless other uh, name properties. Uh, so they lost them. They went into retreat. You've got to have babies. <laughs> you you've got to have young people around. And so please note then that uh, at the beginning of Genesis, when God said, "Be fruitful and multiply," that's not. God saying, well you better have children Malaba because that's what sex is for and I'll, uh, that's what I wa-. that is a description of how the world works. That's how the world really works. It doesn't work if there're no children coming into the world. It's fascinating. I mean it's it's really and by the way this you might be interested in just you know setting if you if you got a smart know-it-all relative in your family um giving the task of proving or explaining why it is that uh, economies of populations that stay static fail populations that grow succeed economically provided the, econ- the population is somewhat unified and has certain commonalities in other words um, if if you're Germany or you're France with six million uh, Muslim immigrants who are not integrating, then you have a big problem because French, native French people are not reproducing at all. Muslims in France are reproducing significantly. The most popular name continues of newborn babies, continues to be of men, Mohammed in France. Uh, and so you'd say, well, they'll be OK because their population may not be growing with with French, but it is growing with uh, Muslim immigrant. No, that actually does not work because it is not a unified population. So that's another uh, economic reality that one has to take into account. Now, uh, one of the most uh, destructive but most influential economists of the 20th century was a guy called John Maynard Keynes. And uh, his ideas um, made the Great Depression before World War II longer and worse than it needed to be. Um, John Maynard Keynes um, really gave Franklin Delano Roosevelt the uh, principles of the New Deal in the 1930s. And what he spoke about was that government must spend money to prime the pump. And I mentioned this now for a number of reasons having to do with children, but also to do with the fact that right now in the United States of America, the Biden administration is trying to prime the pump by government spending. The Biden administration is trying to solve the scary problem of inflation by spending more government money. And they are saying to themselves, well, That's how Franklin Delano Roosevelt cured, solved the Great Depression of the 1930s, and that is uh, therefore the right thing to do. And after all, Keynes can't possibly be wrong. And of course, economists and historians today now know very well that Keynes was uh, terribly wrong and FDR was wrong. Uh, What could have been a short, deep, and quick deep recession, became a long depression because of government policies, because of the way uh, the New Deal spent money that didn't exist. And uh, the, 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 the terrible suffering of the depression Uh, was shown by no less an authority than the Nobel Prize-winning economist Milton Friedman was a result of the spending of the New Deal. That's what caused the problem. Uh, the, the, The result was the Great Depression didn't end until after World War II. And you see, what happens is the left in general focuses on fooling people, making them feel better, without actually solving the problems i think mask wearing by the way and vax mandates are a lot like that the science is becoming clearer and clearer and clearer that neither of these things make sense but they do make people feel that the government is doing something and that's what the new deal as well did as well and uh, and so today a lot of people that don't even aren't aware of that period of American history, and they still assume that uh, John Maynard Keynes was was right. But here was the problem with Keynesian thinking. Keynesian thinking was focusing on the short term. Now, you know you know that economies don't work that way. Money doesn't work that way. You constantly try and educate your children to think long term, not short term, But the genius academic and professor, John Maynard Keynes, said the short term is all that matters. And his famous remark was, in the long run, we're all dead. So don't worry about the long run. Only worry about the short run. And uh, that was really important. Furthermore, you should know, and I, you, you need to be aware of this if you ever find yourself in arguments with people over John Maynard Keynes, because the left, believe, oh, this great economist ended the recession. No, he didn't. He extended the recession, made it much worse and caused much more suffering. Uh, let me tell you some more of the beliefs of John Maynard Keynes, because it's very relevant to what's happening wherever you live. This is relevant to for you to understand as uh, part of your treating at least two of the F's that I'm going to be discussing today, finance and family. Uh, John Mayard Keynes really discouraged savings. He thought saving money was really bad. Spending money, that's what keeps the economy going. I, I, I understand why he thought that, but he's wrong, and it's astounding that he didn't realize he was wrong. It's not as if there weren't any other economists at the time who didn't know he was wrong, but he was popular in the same way. Have you ever wondered why Anthony Fauci has so much influence in America, in spite of the fact that he's been wrong on so much for two years? Because the way things work right now, and it's it's a curse of history, is that um, it's non-merit-based, and that is people become popular. The media crowns people. The media anoints people. Popular culture views some people as good and some people as bad. And if somebody has been labeled as bad, well, then no matter what he says, he has no credibility whatsoever. And conversely, once somebody has been anointed as good, uh, as Fauci himself said, I am science. Uh, as if any one person can ever be science. But that's what Fauci said. People bought into it. And um, that was how it used to be. John Maynard Keynes was the darling of society. They loved him. And um, uh, I'll I'll come to something controversial in just a moment. But he literally discouraged savings. And he used very strong language for it. Um, He said, this is... um, uh, the, this is nothing but financial abstinence. You see, he was tying it to sex. It's financial abstinence, and abstinence is bad. That's all what savings about. Everything you try and encourage yourself to do and your children to do, John Maynard Keynes thought was a, a major threat to economic recovery and progress. Um basically what what uh, Keynes did was he took all of the values that built Western civilization and turned them into vices, and he took all the vices of economics and turned them into values. He focused on the short term, not the long term. He hated savings. He loved spending. Uh, he hated government frugality. He loved big government spending projects. And... Um, You know why? Why did he believe all of that? Well, one of the hypotheses in uh, is that Keynes um, was an active homosexual. He he did get married late in life, but he he never had any children, and he remained uh, childless, or as some people today like to say, child-free. That's called turning a vice into a virtue, and so. Um <clears throat> by the way, you're not allowed to say this kind of thing today, even though um major biographers of John Maynard Keynes, people like Robert Skidelsky, for instance, um said explicitly that Keynes had a lifelong bias against long-term thinking. Um and uh and and Skidelski said that an individual's concern for the future is an important part of a vibrant and healthy economy, but that Keynes saw concern for the future as morbid and disgusting. Those are Keynes' words. A concern for the future is morbid and disgusting. He went on to say, um, I'm, ta- I'm taking this from, from Keynes's own writing, a concern for the future is semi-criminal and pathological. Um, If you have a concern for the future, you should be treated as having a mental disease. Notice that the left, uh, even the Soviet Union did this, the left likes labeling people who disagree with it as mentally deficient. They've always done this. And, um, And so... Some fairly distinguished biographers and economists at the time did correctly identify Keynes' worldview with his state of childlessness. Another great 20th century economist, by the way, Joseph Schumpeter, a German economist, also um, became very, very persuasive and uh, very compelling. Great reading, by the way. Uh, He lived until just after World War II. Joseph Schumpeter... Um, said that Keynes's essentially short-run philosophy of life is tied to his childlessness because for a person committed to homosexuality who is without descendants, there is little for them to focus the future on. And so, um, not saying every single person who uh, engages in homosexuality does not see the future, but it's certainly more common than not, and Um, And so that would be why uh, it was that uh, John Maynard Keynes thought of concern for the future as uh, a mental disease, a pathology, semi-criminal, a disgusting morbidity. It's remarkable. Anyway, as you can imagine, if today, anybody today, ties Keynes' Destructive and doomed financial thinking to his homosexuality, uh, you you wouldn't have much chance of getting a job in any American university for sure, and um, and so you you got to be aware, by the way, that if you send your children to a gig or to a government university, what they're going to be taught is standard Keynesian thinking. You got to realize. Um, And this is one of the reasons why the Democrats in America always push the inheritance tax and leftists in Great Britain push the inheritance tax, which means that if a person has accumulated money, which he paid tax on all his life, so this is now post-tax money and he dies, the government takes a huge slice of it. And this happens in America to this very day um, because they see the desire to build long-term wealth as immoral and you have got to understand that at its heart this is all based on keynesian short-term thinking and that is that life is just about your life there is no it's not intergenerational and any concern for the future and for future generations is wrong even though you and i know it's in here an inherent part of human nature We do care about our children, and I'll explain that in a few minutes. Suffice it to say that it is very significant that God's instruction book for humanity, namely the Bible, has a rule about honoring your parents. But nowhere does it say parents should honor their children, parents should look after their children, parents should care about their children. Why not? Because the Bible doesn't have to tell us things we do naturally. Right, God doesn't say, by the way, remember to breathe regularly. Remember to eat so you don't starve to death. God doesn't have to worry about his children eating. We eat plenty. But when it comes to honoring parents, that goes against our natures. And that's why so many therapists make so much money listening to people complaining about their parents. But there's no have. there has to be no Bible rule. There's no sixth commandment. And conversely, having taught you the fifth commandment to honor your parents, we're now going to teach parents to honor their children and to take care of their children and love their children and make sure their children get ballet lessons and orthodontics and learn how to code. No, it doesn't do anything like that because human nature is to care for children. And the general rule you should know is that secular fundamentalism tries to undo human nature, tries as much as possible to force people to to get beyond their inherent nature and to adopt policies of a brave new alien world. Yes, it is natural for parents to want to leave their children an inheritance. It's deeply embedded in us. And the left wants to make sure you can't do that. Inheritance tax? No, sorry. Property is yours till you pass on. But once you've passed on, you don't own it anymore. It becomes the state's. That is exactly how the left believes. And so, uh, this idea that we do care about the future, John Maynard Keynes tried to undo. Don't save, don't invest. Um, you don't care about the long term because in the long term we're all dead. No, we're not all dead in the long term. Our children survive and their children after them. And what sort of human being are you if you don't care about the future but only the now? Well, you are a secular fundamentalist, just a fancy term for socialism. Because socialism cares not about the, f- the past. That's why socialism likes destroying the statues of a country's history. And it certainly doesn't care about the future, which is why abortion is a sacred sacrament of secularism. It only cares about the present. But real human beings, happy warriors, care about the past and about the future, just as they care about the present. So, what's another very important area in which secular fundamentalism, otherwise known as socialism, tries to subvert human nature, and that is the whole idea of having children. And so, um, look out for this because I've been watching this carefully now for the last year or so, so, a bit more, and uh, what am I talking about? Uh, the number of young people who are under the age of 30 years old who are choosing voluntarily to be sterilized. Uh, This is not only in the United States, it's in other countries as well, and I've had no trouble finding material on this. Uh, Doctors are talking about it and writing about it, and we don't actually have numbers, but the trend is very, very noticeable. Uh, The number of childless young women that are coming to doctors and requesting tubal ligations or the numbers of childless young men seeking vasectomies is higher than ever before. And doctors, as I say, are talking about it. Um, Doctors are concerned because they are worried about the ethics of inflicting probably permanent damage to reproductive systems uh, of young patients it's crazy it's really really weird and doctors understandably are saying could i be sued and so they go to great lengths i mean because one of the great gods of medicine today is a reproductive choice and so on the one hand they're worried about damaging patients you know and on the other hey who are we to take away our patient's choice and so there this is where a lot of the talking comes about and i find it very interesting because it's all an issue of morality however um these uh, people young people are coming along and the doctors ask them to sign waivers and to give explanations of what anyway so we have a lot of indications from young people requesting permanent sterilization uh, making it impossible for them to ever have children. And they give a lot of reasons. Um, I, one young 19-year-old said, I want time alone. Uh, I want time with my partner. Uh, somebody else said, I want to travel and spend money on luxury. There's nothing wrong with that. It's my life, and I'm not hurting anybody. And all this stuff sort of sounds rather plausible. I mean, what are you going to say? It's not your life. It is your life. I'm not hurting anybody. Well, you actually are. You're hurting my children because they are going to live in a world with fewer children because you're choosing not to have children. And so there are a lot of problems with that because, for one thing, your Social Security payments are going to come out of my children's paycheck. So that's a problem. You are hurting somebody else. But anyway, that's what they say. Uh, You're also making it so that my children are living... will be living in a uh, a smaller population with all the accompanying problems associated with a declining population. Um, uh, Another very popular explanation they give for wanting to be permanently sterilized, they want to protect the planet from climate change. Uh, Others say the world is suffering from overpopulation. I'm doing the right thing by making sure I never have children. One of the very popular ones is, um, I dislike how having children has changed the appearance and the lives of my friends. Others speak about the cost of raising a family. But um, one of the biggest things that keeps cropping up, and this is what I find most fascinating and, and relevant to our conversation, is that they all speak of having seen very few examples of happy families. You know, fulfilled parents, happy children. And they they say, you know, some of them even speak about having themselves grown up in broken homes. Uh, one of them said to her doctor, my generation live in a broken world. We came from broken homes and we have broken minds and bodies. Many of us just do not want to reproduce isn't that interesting they they see all the negatives the cost of raising children and what having children some of them speak about what it does to the looks the physical appearance of parents you know it's like it's like they're peter pan kids like in other words they won't accept that aging and maturing is a natural part of living it's very interesting and so it's it's weird because this is such a departure from a biblical worldview. If you look at a biblical worldview, Abraham's wife, Sarah, Genesis chapter 16, she suffered terribly from being childless. Her daughter-in-law, Rebecca, Genesis chapter 25, you should read about this. It's very poignant. Uh, suffered from being childless. Rachel, Je- um, Rachel, Rebecca's daughter-in-law, Rachel, Genesis 29, very poignant. You read it, you, you'll see these are not women who are happy not to have children. Um, Hannah, in the first book of Samuel, chapter one, suffered dreadfully. She literally suffered by being childless. Those are just a few examples. And so, um, why, why do people bring children into their lives and into the world? Well, I do think that uh, most women, and some men, do experience a biological and almost biological yearning for children. But while this could possibly explain why we have children, it doesn't explain why so many people deeply, deeply want their children to build successful lives. Well, the uh, secular fundamentalist answer is that we are programmed to want our children to succeed in order to give our genes the best shot at survival and reproduction. However, this is clearly disproven. This biological determinism fails to explain. You know why? Because if you just look at American society or British society, for that matter, and you see the huge number of men who impregnate women and vanish, and the huge number of women who take up with boyfriends who hurt their children, you realize that there is not a deep biological commitment to take care of our children. There may be a biological commitment to have children, but not to raise them. And so, This is why Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 is hugely important. Um, Be fertile and raise your children and fill the earth. Now, you'll notice I did not translate it as the overwhelming majority of translations incorrectly say, be fruitful and multiply. And I explain this in great detail in our program, Scrolling Through Scripture, It's an online course you'll see on my website at rabbidaniellappin.com. And you'll also see the possibility of becoming part of the Happy Warrior community. Join and become a happy warrior. But I explain that be fruitful and multiply is not correct. Um, The Bible does not engage in poetic repetition. Um, The actual Hebrew means be fertile and raise your children. In other words, do not just bring them into the world and leave them there while you take care of your pleasures. Raising your children is part of what you want to do. That's called caring about the future. And so, uh, God is saying that the world works better when people have children, raise them, and fill the earth, expand, because larger populations— are better than smaller populations. And the fact is, even if you're somebody who doesn't really care much about the Bible, even if you're somebody... Look, even if you don't care about the Bible, above all, please don't allow yourself to be ignorant of it, okay? And uh, at the very least, um, go ahead and get from my website a Rabbi Daniel and Recommended Bible so at least you're not ignorant. But um, even for people who don't care about the Bible... It's obvious, right, that we get benefits and gifts from children. For one thing, they force us to become mature and generous. It's it's true. I mean, you think of yourself. If you're a person who has children, think of yourself back when you were 16 or 17. Would you have done for anybody what you now do for your children? This is really the first time in our lives where we get to a point where we discover that giving is more fun than getting. (laughs) it's amazing and we start getting a hint of that of course when we get married so um, children do force us to become mature and generous which by the way is not what secularized fundamentalists want to have happen anyway because like John Maynard Keynes like Peter Pan they want to care only about the present not about the future and number two I would say children grant us a kind of immortality Um, Now, obviously, uh, John Maynard Keynes doesn't believe in immortality because in the long run, we're all dead, says he. And um, he doesn't believe in saving or investing. He believes in spending. And uh, those who follow him uh, believe exactly the same thing. John Maynard Keynes believed that no, he, let's put it this way he wasn't a secular fundamentalist because he believed that he believed that because he was a secular fundamentalist in other words it's very difficult to persuade secular fundamentalists of the wrongness of their economic thinking i you know i'm, I'm sorry to say that but uh, such debates and arguments are usually pointless the fact is that only first of all by developing a relationship with a spiritual reality, is there any chance of people understanding economic reality? And so, uh, when young people tell doctors, oh, I want to really just experience love with my partner, um, they are people who have been stripped of all awareness of spiritual reality. But uh, again, the, the biggest problem of all, is that so many people are growing up today never having experienced a happy family. Isn't it something? I mean, it's it's really amazing. They haven't. They weren't raised, you know, just think about how many children are raised in broken families today. And all the psychologists today show, sure, oh, it's fine because divorced people can do just as good a job of raising their children as married people. And again, you know, if you believe that, then you probably would believe that spending is better than saving and thinking only about today is better than thinking about tomorrow. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, there is a lot like that. Um, C.S. Lewis, great Christian writer, by the way, um, wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. I learned a lot. I mean, it's it's really... Uh, it, it, For people who are going through suffering, it's an important book. Uh, But he he says a nice thing. He says that uh, people want not so much a father in heaven. They want a grandfather in heaven, meaning they want a kind father, you know, because grandparents, right, are—who doesn't like their grandparents? Who doesn't like grandpa and grandma for the most part, Right. And and so even when you're little and you still think your parents are worse than everyone else's parents and they just don't have it together, but other people's parents have got it together, uh but you, your grandparents, they're terrific. Right? nearly always. So that that notion of um of parents, yeah, it's uh it's it's really important. And so um we've we've got to understand the importance of of building a good family. Now uh, here on the home stretch, this is where we come to the F of family. And um, and let me explain that uh, as you and you know you might be a young person on the threshold, uh, thinking about building a family, like the young man who asked the question that we featured in Ask the Rabbi um, last week on the website um and and it's really fascinating i mean this is a young person he's 17 and he's looking ahead to the family he's going to build that is a happy warrior and um the uh, i think uh, he by the way he's a croatian happy warrior quite a few of them it's quite wonderful and so uh you know you you may be Uh, at a later stage where you've built your family already, maybe your children are grown, maybe you're being a good grandparent now, Uh, or maybe, maybe none of that is happening for you, but you can nonetheless be influential in the lives of those around you. Building a family is not only good for you, but it's good for society. In other words, the problems that Japan ran into is that they ignored the verse that I spoke earlier about in the book of Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. Be fertile and raise children. Japan ignored that and it ended up being very painful economically and in many, many other ways. Things are not easy in Japan right now. And it's worthwhile being aware of it. When God said, be fertile and raise your children, that wasn't just an instruction to Adam and Eve. That was telling us that societies in all times and in all places to the end of time, uh, all will benefit from fertility. And that it is a worrying sign that the uh, fertility rate is so low in Western countries, a huge problem. And it's not hard to see where the future is going. There are fewer and fewer Italians and Swedes and French and German. There are more and more and more Africans, for instance. And, um, and so, you know, Africa is probably on the way up. Um, migration isn't likely to stop anytime soon because the dearth of population in Europe may well be continued to be made up for by immigration but it's not an immigration that shares the same cultural values that built up that particular civilization in the first place and so uh, what I'm I'm speaking to happy warriors now and uh, I just got a wonderful card It was actually a Hanukkah greeting card from a happy warrior couple in Vilna. It's called Vilnius today, where my family used to live there before World War II. It used to be called Vilna. Today, it's Vilnius in the country of Lithuania, um, which is right on the borders of of Russia. But uh, this couple, a real, real happy warrior couple, and they are on the threshold of starting to build their family. And uh, and I'm thinking of people like that who are really saving civilization. And so I want to give you three pointers for family life for raising children. Okay, three pointers. Uh, these are really really important. If you already have children, it's not too late to have a family reorganization and to begin implementing these really important principles. Um, If you are in grandparent mode, then it can still be taught to your children and to your grandchildren. Whatever phase of life you're in, if you're a happy warrior, you can somehow make use of the following three principles that are crucially important for the F of family. So are you ready? Here they come. Number one, parents are God's agents for the raising and educating of young children. They authoritatively represent God's moral and spiritual values. Children must learn that their parents respect God's rules if you want them to respect your rules. Do you understand what I'm saying? They've got to see you obeying God's rules. You've got to choose what aspect of those rules you're going to emphasize depending on what's age-appropriate. Maybe you want your children to see you giving charity in an age-appropriate way. And when you say to them, why do you think I'm giving my money to somebody else? Then it's your opportunity to explain it's one of God's rules. And you can even take them into the Bible and read to them where the rule is written down. If they see you obeying God's rules, then since you are God's representative in their worlds, they will respect your rules. If they see you respecting no rules at all, then why would they respect your rules? Right? Little children spot the hypocrisy right away. And so uh, you've you got to see that, um, that the fifth commandment is chiefly about the idea of respecting zones of authority. And so you've got to help your children honor and respect you. It doesn't come naturally. And this is one of the ways in which a married, mar- married parents have it much easier than single parents, because mom can help the children learn to respect dad, and dad can help the children honor mom. And so neither has to Uh, sound like blustering bullies in demanding respect for themselves but it's hugely important and so um, get that rule clear you got to be comfortable with the notion that parents are god's agents for the raising and educating of little children Uh, eventually they'll graduate from you and they'll move on to a direct relationship with our boss in heaven right but until then it's your job as a parent so uh, that's number one number two parents are seriously obligated to educate their children in only three basic areas you want to teach them ballet dancing, God bless you, that's optional on your own time. You want to teach them, um, you know, anything else, optional. But there are three basic areas which should under no circumstances be left to geeks. I'm not even sure you should think of leaving them to private school. If you are responsible enough to be homeschooling your your children, then that's fine. If you're sending them to private school, that's Uh, it's a good start, but make sure that these three areas are being taught, because they are your responsibility. The three mandatory areas, where as a parent, you, nobody else, you are obliged to educate your children. Number one, male-female relationships, right? Number two, how money works. Number three, about God. Now, all this is always age-appropriate, right? You don't need me to tell you how to teach male-female relationships to a five-year-old as differently to a 12-year-old on maybe in adolescence or coming into puberty, um, or to a 16 or 17-year-old contemplating the future. Male-female relationships, you start teaching early, young, and you never stop. You keep teaching that, and once again, being married is a huge advantage because showing is always better than telling, and don't jump to wrong conclusions here. I'm talking about showing children how mother and father relate to one another, the respect, the love, the compassion, the kindness, all of that part of male-female relationships, and you always make sure that at Each phase your child goes through, you are teaching that in an age-appropriate way. How money works? Again, you don't need me to explain how to teach a five-year-old about the reality of money and what you would teach a nine-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 16-year-old. But don't count on geeks teaching your children about money. They will not do it for reasons I've discussed in the past. And so make sure your children develop a real understanding of how money works. All of this has to do with how the world really works, of course. And again, grandparents have a role to play here as well. And uh, older siblings with younger siblings, everyone has a role to play. Because unlike John Maynard Keynes, we know that in the long run, we all live. And finally, all about God. Um, there is a wonderful verse, if you're interested in the ancient Jewish wisdom on this, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 19. And you shall love the Lord your God. And it speaks about uh, when you are at home and when you are on the road traveling and when you lay down and go to sleep and when you get up in the morning. And those three categories allude to these three uh, aspects of education um when you are at home what is the home something created by male female relationships when you're traveling well what do you travel for nine times out of ten you should travel for business right not for tourism but for business to make money and so um loving god and teaching your children and um uh that, that, that when we are educating our children, we are talking about male-female relationships, we're talking about money, and when you lay down and when you arise, alludes to when you sleep, when you wake up, is the difference between being awake and asleep has to do with spiritual and physical. You teach children spiritual reality centered about God. Um, and, uh, and so, I've told you so far two of the three basics. Number one is parents are God's agents for the raising and educating of young children. Principle number two is parents have, to ob- pa- parents have to learn that they are obligated to educate their children in the three fundamental mandatory areas, male-female relationships, money, and God. And thirdly, finally, just as God does with us, we sometimes have to present to our children the voice of uncompromising authority, but at other times we have to project a gentle kindness. It goes without saying that a mother and a father married and working in tandem with one another makes this vital bifurcation much easier. It's really, really important. There are times where you do have to stick to the rules and it's painful. And you even have to say to a child, well, that's the consequence. I told you that I needed you to do this thing and that there would be a consequence. Well, here is the consequence. And it, it breaks your heart because the child's eyes well up and he gets or she gets all sad and miserable. And you think, I, I could let it go this time. I mean, I've just come home from work. I, I really don't need a fight with my kids. I really would like the benefits of a happy home for the evening before bedtime and the role of a parent is to know there are times you dare not do that. But then there are other times where an arm around the shoulder or lifting onto the lap and a kiss on the cheek, that's just as important. And it so happens in general, not always, but in general, uh, mothers and fathers naturally fall into their own roles in that in that ability. Um, I had a friend who would much rather be disciplined by his father than by his mother. (laughs) And I remember I was scared of her too. But uh, in general, parents can work that out together. It's not that one always does the gentle and one always does the stern, but it's always there's somebody else to double guess it. And If the father is about to go off on an overly stern uh, response to something, uh, his wife can shoot him a look that says, hey, not now, Sam, take it easy. Um, and it brings him back to reality. Or at a time where a wife is just about to let something go, and the father gives her the look that says, pass this one over to me. This needs to be handled here and now. And this kind of collaboration is part of the joy of marriage and part of the joy of raising children. Um really all-important and really important to understand. So, there it is. Uh, There is the whole story. Uh, Faith, family, friendship, finance, and fitness. Yes, they all go together. And uh, the first part of today's show was to help you see how finance and family are very linked to one another. That if you strip family away, and you have more and more and more young people not wanting to have children or build families, then they are destroying the finances of an entire society and of the future. And, um, and in addition to that, there is also just the joy of a marriage if it's run correctly and the joy of raising children. If you realize that our role is not just to drop a child into the world, but to raise that child. Be fertile and raise your children. And that if you remember the three fundamentals of raising children, as we've just covered, right? That parents are God's agents for raising and education of young children. And I I can't tell you how much easier it is to raise a proper family with God as a partner than without. This doesn't mean that there are no lovely families who are secular. But it does mean that uh, the 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 picture of the family, the Hollywood picture of the family, that is utterly secular, but lovely. Um, do you remember, I, I think it was last week or was it the week before where I alluded to a movie. Uh, I was speaking about... It was, it was one of my predictions last week. I was speaking about that the term technology will, in 2022 tend to expand beyond electronics. We'll begin to see many other things as technology as well. And I spoke about how in the early years of the 20th century, young guys keen on tech... Didn't go to electronics. it didn't exist. They went to Detroit to build cars, and I spoke about Cordelia's young man in a movie, which whose name I forgot. Thank you to all of you who rode in so promptly to give me the right name. It was called the Happiest Millionaire was the name of the movie, and that was a, a happy family, but um and there are many other fa- happy families in Hollywood, and there's no God and there's no faith. Um, just consider the possibility that even if you have chosen to take a a, a secular worldview, which many people do while they're single, uh, that when you get married and raise a family, having God as a partner is not a crazy idea. Really makes things a lot easier and raises the odds of success enormously. So um, it goes without saying, That is no guarantee, but it obviously is a big help. And that, my friends, brings us to as far as we are going to go for today. Now, unbeknownst to me, Mrs. Lappin was doing what she often does, which is keeps an eye on me, just as I keep an eye on her, of course. But um, she just uh, popped her head into the studio to, uh, to say that that I was wrong that the happiest millionaire uh, did have a religious component to it and uh, that was Biddle's Bible class in fact, mr. Biddle used to teach a group of boys Bible and he also taught them boxing so um, so I was unfair to that particular movie she wanted to say that and then also to uh, remind you all that there is a sale right now on on two um, very valuable resources on our website, at our store. Uh, one of them is a journal, and at the beginning of 2022, what could be more helpful than to start a the practice of journaling? I've taught in the past of how useful it really is and how it helps you um, make sure that you live your life by design rather than just by random happenstance. So, Chart Your Course is our journal based on the principles of the five Fs and ancient Jewish wisdom. And also, in addition to the journal Chart Your Course, the beginning of a new year is a really good time to begin to take yourself seriously, take your life seriously. And uh On sale, we have a new book we've just published called Soul Construction. Shape your character using eight steps from the timeless Jewish practice of Musar. And um, you can read more about it on the website, but it's called Soul Construction. In other words, take responsibility for constructing your own soul, your spiritual reality, And uh, this book's a great roadmap for doing it. Um, We're getting a very, very positive response, and it's something that I would recommend that you take a very good look at at rabbidaniellappin.com. So um, if you are listening to this at the beginning of 2022, for I am preparing it for you in the closing days of 2021, uh, I want to wish you a... uh, a year, not a happy new year, because happiness is your responsibility. It's a moral obligation. It's not external circumstances that make you happy. It's you that makes you happy. So to say, I wish you a happy new year. No, just m- make it a happy new year. You don't need my wishes to make. It. Just make it a happy new year. Make Take on the obligation, the moral obligation of being happy, right? That's I can't wish you that. Um, but I can wish you a healthy New Year, and I can wish you a prosperous New Year, and I can tell you that if you follow your five Fs, then your odds of prosperity are greatly enhanced, and your odds of health are greatly enhanced, as are your odds for family. So um, until next week, a very positive and uplifting new year a year of growth in your family and your faith your finances and your friendships and your fitness i'm rabbi daniel lapin god bless stream and subscribe to more blaze media content at the blaze.com/podcasts